Hey, welcome to the next episode of Muthanomics. Muthanomics number 55. Only two, this is the second episode in the shift of focus on looking at the power of poverty. And I'm actually going to change the one word um, in the podcast tagline already. Uh, I've been thinking about it over the weekend. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm really trying to get away from this arm's length uh kind of approach to different things in life and I I felt as I thought about it that even saying the power of poverty is still too arm's lengthy and it's a little too passive. Um, I listened to a short clip this weekend uh, and I can't remember who, who was the guy was quoting but it was basically some author um, who said that that drifting through life is hell on earth but but steering is a glimpse of heaven um now whether you you know i don't know how theologically sound that statement is um but i did feel like of is a little bit still drifty so i'm going to just simply change this thing power from poverty euthanomics power from poverty because what i'm really after here is deriving power uh from poverty. And I think that by just looking at it saying, oh yeah, you know, poverty has some negative power to it and some positive power and you kind of pick or choose. Like I think that gives me, it gives people an out to say, oh, the negative power of poverty is so strong, you know, I'm sort of helpless and can't really do anything with this. Um, So I'm I'm changing it to power from poverty because I think that there is a lot of uh, strength and kind of oxymoronical, is that a word? <laughs> um, oxymoronical power that can be uh, derived from these different situations and experiences that uh, poverty brings our way. So with that out of the way, uh, this episode I'm going to be looking at breaking the daydreaming the cycle of daydreaming and despair breaking the destructive cycle of daydreaming and despair Um, as I've been kind of organizing into different points and different categories things um, one thing that is definitely true of the poverty that I experience and I'm assuming that it is true um, for a lot of people who have either experienced poverty or who are currently in poverty is that poverty has a tendency to disrupt and ultimately destroy structures and patterns. And you go, what do you mean by that? Well, in in my childhood, in my experience, poverty destroyed all sense of structure and all sense of patterns. And it, it wasn't... What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, what's the word that that chefs use or like uh, critics use? Like discerning, like you know, for the discerning taste. Uh, Mercedes for the discerning driver. Like it didn't distinguish between which structures and which patterns it wanted to destroy. It just kind of went at them across the board. So I'm just gonna tick through some of these that uh, poverty, in my experience. 
uh, with coupled with substance abuse, coupled with strong alcoholism, um, destroyed. And, and the first was any sense of, of schedule, any sense of time-based scheduling. Uh, growing up, the only real schedule that I ever saw was my mom, who was a registered nurse. She would, at various times throughout my childhood, as we moved around various towns and cities and things around the American Southwest, she would get these kind of temp jobs, short-term jobs as a nurse at different hospitals. And so the only really, the only really time that I saw any sort of time-based structure, time-based schedule was when my mom had to go to her shifts at the hospital. Um, other than that, it was really, for the most part, kind of just a, a hippie paradise, um, wake up free for all. Um, my sisters and I were homeschooled. Uh, I was homeschooled through the 10th grade with a couple of exceptions of, you know, dropping into a elementary school for a month or two as we bounced around. But by and large, the schedule that I experienced as a kid, there was zero structure. There was zero time constraints. It was wake up um, when we were, we were parked a trailer in Kingman, Arizona, and I'd, you'd wake up and just go explore the desert all day, run around in the sandy washes and play cowboys and Indians and um, like, you know, sit under greasewood bushes. And I remember we learned how to, how to create water out of using condensation. So we would dig down into the deserty sand. And so long as you had like a stick to make kind of like a plastic teepee, um, and you can't say teepee, you're culturally appropriating, whatever. You make a plastic tent, plastic shaped, it was a teepee shape. Um, and you had some sort of collection device um, in the hole that you dug and you let it sit there in the sun. The heat coupled with whatever moisture was around, you know, the greasewood bushes, you could uh, over time generate a couple ounces of water from the condensation. That was a useful trick that uh, I remember. Um, but on the flip side, if we wanted to wake up, if we never wanted to wake up, like if we just wanted to sleep and just sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep, you could have done that. You could stay out till the week, you, you could run around in the desert till who knows when, and you hear the coyotes howl and you know, there was no set meal time. There was no set study time. There was no set work time. It was just an absolute destruction of any sort of time-based structure. And that wasn't just Kingman. That was Cave Creek, Arizona. That was Sedona, Arizona. That was Tucson. That was the four places we lived in Flagstaff. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It was, there was zero time-based structure. And so in my experience, substance, alcohol-fueled substance abuse-driven poverty really sought out to destroy a lot of structures and patterns. And, and time-based structure was probably the first casualty in that whole thing. Um, I think the only other place that I saw, that I saw some time-based structure was when my dad started enrolling me in these tennis tournaments. Um, and again, <laughs> if you haven't listened to this, you don't know anything about me. It's what I said in the last one. You're going to hear, you're going to see blonde, blue eyes, Caucasian plays tennis, and you're going to instantly think country club, yuppie, jock, rich, snotty kid. 
I don't. I have no clue on earth why my dad picked tennis, other than the fact that it was free. Like you could go to a city court and you could learn it for free. Now I don't know why he didn't pick basketball because you could you could do that. You know you can learn basketball at a city court for free. Um, you can learn baseball at a city softball field for free. Um, but I think all those other sports required teams. And being the uh, antisocial kind of off-the-grid dude that he was, I think the idea of team was just like anathema to him. Uh, he wanted nothing to do with that. So the individualism of tennis, I think, appealed to him. Um, but that was the only other time that I really got introduced or was aware of time-based structures. Um, and it's really the first time that I got introduced to the penalty that comes with failing to abide by time-based structures. Um, if you're familiar with tennis, or maybe you're not, when you play a USTA, United States Tennis Association Junior Tennis Tournament, the, there's a handbook of rules like most sports have. And one of, in the rule book, there is a, so your match time say is at 9 a.m. And you have to check in for that match by 9 a.m. And if you're like, you know, one to five minutes late, oh man, it's been so long, I can't remember all the penalties, but if you're like one to five minutes late, you lose the coin toss. So meaning, you know, before the match, you, you spin your racket or flip a coin to see who's gonna have the choice to serve or return or which side you wanna pick. Um, if you're like six to 10 minutes late, I think you lose like the first point. Um, if you're 10 to 15, 11 to 15 minutes late, you lose a game. And if you're over 15 minutes late, it's a full-on DQ. Um, so tennis not only introduced me to time-based structures, it was the first place that introduced me to um, structures, the, the penalty of failing to abide by time-based structures. <laughs> There's a lot of anxiety uh, that I possess um, as a kid, remembering rushing to these matches and being late, being perpetually late. Um, dozen, probably a dozen times over the years showing up to matches late. Um, and yeah, so anyway, time-based structure, poverty. Poverty seeks to disrupt and destroy structures and patterns. And the first one that I saw um, quite frequently and pretty much across the board was the destruction of time structures. Um, I think the next thing that's most important in there that I saw was really the destruction of any sort of nuclear family structure, any sort of nuclear family role. Um, you know, and I've told my dad this uh, previously that you know he, he 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 apologized a while back. Oh, you know, you know, sorry for the the drinking. You know, alcoholism is you know just tough. And and I said, you know. Dad, it, it's not so much the circumstances. It wasn't so much the nasty, you know, overflowing camper porta potties and the, you know, lack of electricity and no running water and lack of food. I mean, it wasn't so much the circumstances. Yeah, they were bad. But if there was a sense of like struggle, you know, like my parents were struggling together in a way to try to, you know, incrementally kind of work towards something better. That's a whole different scenario than just sort of 
being whatever the opposite of that is. Zero, no, not struggling together, fighting against one another, um, and most of the time just sinking into despair and nihilism and fatalism and and you know just a hundred percent embracing just giving up um, because other people got you know at, when when the universe doled out the cards you know my dad got dealt an offsuit you know two seven um, for to use a poker analogy or you know when. When the good Lord was, you know, dispensing the sticks that were to get drawn, oh, by golly, you know, my dad got the short stick um, and nothing you could do about it. And, and it's why I've titled this, this episode, Breaking the Cycle of Daydreaming and Despair, um, because that's really kind of, I think, the core of what happens when you get stuck in a depressed poverty cycle is you spend most of your time in despair and if it's coupled with substance abuse as in in my dad's case it was alcohol it really spiral spirals and stays in despair most of the time very deep dark uh defeated despair um so you've got to break that cycle and we're going to get into a couple uh, ways and, and tips and thoughts on how to do that. Um, but I, I, before I get there, what I want to say is that the, the destroying of structures and patterns, what that created, and, and it's something that I really had to fight against, even now as a 44-year-old, is what that environment created. Growing up and seeing zero structures as it relates to time, as it relates to family unit, family structure, um, as it relates to any sort of planning to, you know, incrementally try to take steps to improve your lot in life. Um, What it ultimately created was that it, it made it incredibly easy to plant. Like super easy to plant. Like... When you move 17 times by the time you're 12, you quickly get accustomed to just planting. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, here we're, we're landing in a new trailer park or we're landing in a new low, you know, low income rental or we're landing, we're parking the trailer on, you know, a new vacant plot of land out in the middle of nowhere. Um, okay, it's a new thing. So you get addicted to this newness, which is in what, which I would describe as planting. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, we got to plant again. We're going to plant. You know, walk half mile down the street and meet the other, you know, weird neighbor kid living in a trailer. Um, you know, let's go explore this new region of the Southwest and, you know, entertain ourselves. So it makes it really easy to plant. And that can be a positive thing. And we'll talk about that more in depth as we continue to explore this this topic of of deriving power from poverty. Um, But the downside to that, and this is really destructive, this is one of the structures and the patterns that poverty really destroys, is it makes it incredibly, like Herculeanly, Herculeanly, (laughs) I love dropping L-Ys on words, just make adjectives out of them, it makes it herculeanly impossible 
it's it's like 99.999% impossible to not uproot. And it doesn't take a botanist. What are you, a botanist? What, water with, give it water from, like water from the toilet? Um, if you haven't seen Idiocracy, the Brondo toilet water scene is, is a gem. Like water from the toilet? Yeah, I ain't no botanist, but I'm pretty sure the plants want water. Um, it doesn't take a botanist to realize that the only way that something organic, like an organic plant, is going to grow is by not uprooting it. And I cannot overstate how destructive this culmination of poverty, of not having structures and patterns, um, whether time-based, whether family structure-based, whether goal-based, planning-based, the most practical outcome from that in my life was that it made it incredibly easy to plant and it made it almost practically impossible not to uproot. And, you know, we probably talk about this in terms of self-sabotage and self-destructive behaviors and, you know, the inability to follow through. Um, I remember a guy that I met, I, I, I don't want to name his name because I don't know if people will be... <laughs> I don't know if they want to be associated with this podcast. Um, but there's a dude, a good friend of mine in Albuquerque back in the day, um, who I did some business with. And he was about 10 years older than me. And I remember him telling me once, he said, Brandon, he said, if you can ever learn to see things through to their completion, he goes, you're going to become a very formidable force in business. And, you know, when he told me that when I was like 22, 23, I was like, Pfft whatever, dude, like, you know, I'm just hustling. I get things done, just move, but just move, just move. But as I've reflected on that over the tw last 20 years, it's like, wow, he is absolutely right. And growing up, moving 17 times, getting really accustomed to planting, because that's like what you do when you move. I don't even know what that is. I haven't calculated it out. What's 17 divided by 12, like three times a year? No, that would be 36. Twice a year, 24. Once every nine months, whatever my math is. So when you're moving once every nine months, the planting is like second nature. It's like, oh, new place, new thing, let's do it. But then when you have to stay planted, holy smokes, that's hard. And so hopefully this is encouraging someone who can, can relate to this. Like, you know, if you've grown up in poverty and you haven't seen structures and patterns, it's probably super easy for you to plant which is an incredibly positive thing. Like, you know, when I can compare my experiences with say someone who's like, you know, been a, you know, an accountant or a government employer, grew up in a very stable home where like, you know, they lived in the same house their entire life and they saw their parents go to the exact same jobs day after day after day and go to the exact same church day after day after day and they had the exact same friends for 18 years and, you know, all this stuff. Um, you know, probably one of their weaknesses is taking risks and planting new things because it's like they're not accustomed to that. So if you are in poverty, if you have been in poverty, if you currently are, you know, kind of mired in this daydreaming and despair cycle, take some courage, take some comfort in the fact that your ability to plant and your comfortable, your comfortableness 
The fact that you're extremely comfortable and kind of ambidextrous with planting something new, chalk that up in the win column. Like celebrate the small wins. Say, hey, that is a huge strength that providence, that you know, God's sovereignty, that the circumstances of how they've you know gone down in my life, that gives me a leg up in the realm of entrepreneurship, in you know, creative careers, in I want to say vision casting. That sounds like such a cheeseball youth group 1990s uh, era term. Um, but being a visionary, you know, seeing things new and risks, you're probably super comfortable with that. And instead of beating yourself up with that, going, oh, I'm not like anybody else, because that's something I struggled with, is like, oh, nobody understands these experiences. Nobody, you know, why can't anybody see these new things around the corner? Um, well, you know, if, if they had different life experiences as a kid. So, I want to encourage you today, if that's you, if that's been your situation, chalk that up in the win column. Put that in the asset column. Um, And then heed my friend's advice from 20 years ago and start to work on, man, if you could learn to see that through to completion and beyond, you're going to be a formidable force to be reckoned with. Um, And that gets me to this despair and daydreaming cycle Um, because I think where this leads in where this went as far as like day-to-day actions in my childhood um, where this led is it really resulted in day-to-day life being sort of ever increasing like like the it was a vacillation it was vacillating between two things and those vacillations got bigger and more extreme and wilder as time went on and the vacillating between the daydreaming and the despair it's kind of like being on a ship you know that starts rocking or maybe you, um, I'm trying to think, like you've been in a pool and you're, you know, you try to like get the pool water really rocking to like try to, you know, flip over a buddy who's, you know, sunbathing on a, on a floating device in the pool or something like, you know, it starts to rock a little bit. And then as you continue to build that momentum, like the, the rocking and the swaying and the back and forth just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happened uh, with this despair daydreaming cycle. Um, you know, the alcohol would drive my old man into these extremely dark, extremely deep, extremely immovable, dysfunctional, like inability to even get up, um, for days with despair. And in order to come out of that, the daydreaming had to become more and more violent. Like it wasn't just enough. The daydream couldn't be hey, maybe we can save a hundred bucks a month, you know? So it wasn't like practical steps to incrementally move towards a different direction. It was like, we're gonna go from Death Valley, California, bottom of the barrel, lowest point on earth, and we are gonna rocket ship to Everest in one fell swoop if we can just dream big enough. And so the daydreaming, you know, it started with like, you know, we'd be, we'd be chilling in the camper, um, you know, at an RV park or at a, a state park or, yeah, I mean, that's where, where we did it. I mean, the camper was state parks and, and RV parks, truck stops. 
you know, and we'd be chilling there with like no prospects, no work, no nothing, just, you know, scraping by on that day's booze and whatever food we could scrounge up. And, you know, he'd pull out, he'd, he'd, he'd pull out a ruler and a piece of paper and he'd be like, hey, you know, he'd get this wild gleam in his eyes and it was like, hey, you know, when our ship comes in, that was the thing they always used to say, our ship comes in. That was their big thing. My parents loved to talk about their ship coming in. Um, and it was like, why, why are we waiting around for a ship to come in? Like, let's go freaking build our own ship. It's kind of what, how I started to think over the years. But anyway, so we're, you know, we're sitting here and, and he'd get a piece of paper and a, and a pen and a ruler and he'd be like, you know, draw out your dream house. Draw out your dream house. Anything goes. Anything goes. Slides, you know, from the second story down into your playroom. You know, your private swimming pool. Uh, your tennis court that you can train on. You know, we don't have to go to the city courts anymore. You can train on this private court. Just walk out your bedroom and there's your tennis court. You know, a nice luscious lawn. Uh, anything you want. Just, you know. And so my sisters and I, you know, we're 10, 8, and 6. And we'd, we'd spend, that's how we spent our time. It was on these wild daydreams. Um, you know, and we'd sketch out these crazy like spiral you know slides that you know went between all three of our rooms and you know it was just like this this uh, brainstorming almost dreamlike state of detaching disassociating from the fact that you're you know parked in a truck stop with truckers with z you're not heading anywhere the family's not going anywhere there's no plans there's no goals and well that, that's a whole nother topic is the using the the carrot of the next goal to continue the abuse. We'll talk about that. In fact, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to write that down because that's an important one. Carrot of the next goal to continue the abuse. We need to talk about that one because that was that was like you talk about a playbook. That was like, <laughs> you know, certain NFL teams have their favorite play, like, you know, Cowboys, Emmitt Smith, they run right up the gut behind Nate Newton and Mark Tuane and all those big Hall of Fame linemen. My dad's go-to play was put a bigger carrot in front of the family in order to buy more time so that he can continue to languish in his alcoholism. I mean, that's, that's the pattern. And we can talk about that because there were literally dozens of carrots dangled. Um, and as you get older, instead of biting on the carrots, you just begin to resent and hate and loathe more and more and more. Um, you know, so there's no prospects. You know, there's a ton of carrots, but there's actually no like tangible prospects or no tangible plan. There's no structures. There's no patterns to get you there. Um, and we're just disassociating from that current reality in order to daydream about this house that's never going to materialize. Um, and so then kind of, you know, after a day or two or six hours, you know, everybody would realize like, oh, that was a fun exercise, but there's no way that's going to happen with what we're currently doing. Um, then the despair would come back and the despair that time would come back even stronger. And so then the next time, you know, it had to be like, even a bigger daydream. And so we went through this phase and in, in the last episode I talked about, you know, how I talk about these things 
the the value the the power of talking about these things and and accurately and truthfully describing what your body was sensing and what you were feeling when you went through this as opposed to repackaging the language to make it more palatable to the hearer and up until reading that book the body keeps the score when i would recount this story i would talk about it i would say it like this i would say oh man could you believe how terrible this parenting was like my dad used to take us down to the 7-eleven you know and have us fill out um you know lottery numbers once a week and he'd tell us hey you know maybe you know maybe tonight you're gonna you know get touched and you know have the 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 power or the magic to you know have the winning numbers and then can you imagine what we do when our ship came in that's how you should tell it like in a like like in a observer looking in making a commentary on how you know jacked up of parenting that was that's how i always used to describe that story and as i've read the body keeps the score and i've said okay i need to be honest and articulate what my body felt and what i was experiencing when i did when i went through that experience it's a totally different setup. It was incredible. It was incredible to see my dad transform from this bottom of the pit despair, completely lifeless look in his eyes, to this vibrant, crazy eyed, and not crazy eyed like a, you know, like a serial killer crazy eyed, like a passion, like a, like a zest for living and, and like the most wild hope you could ever imagine just like come into his eyes. And instead of just, you know, being viewed, like I went from being viewed as like a, as a piece of luggage that was just sort of burdening his, you know, journey to through ever to wherever he was going to all of the sudden being like the most important person in the world to my dad. It was incredible. I loved going to the 7-Eleven or the Allsips and filling out the freaking lottery numbers. I loved it as a seven-year-old. It was thrilling. Because it was the only time, maybe other than winning tennis matches, but even then not so much, it was the only time that I felt valuable to my old man. That man, maybe I would be lucky enough. Maybe, maybe the powers that be, the gods, the universe would touch me tonight and cause my hand through some sort of like divine divination to fill color in the right oval boxes with my number two pencil so that we could be rescued from this cruel fate that the gods had doled out to our family. That's how I felt it. That's how I experienced it. And when I was finally able to tell that story that way, man, all kinds of stuff got resolved in my brain. All kinds of stuff got resolved in my heart and my mind. So not to beat a dead horse, but just to reiterate what I talked about in that last episode, the body keeps the score. If you're, if you lived through trauma, if you lived through poverty, if you're currently in poverty, if you're currently living in trauma, get the book and read it and either start to practice that stuff by yourself through journaling, through just talking to your spouse, um, or even taking the step to find 
a respected counselor to talk to those things, to talk to someone about those things, there is tremendous cathartic healing power in being honest with what you felt in that situation. And yeah, you know, as a casual observer, I, you know, it's like, oh man, that's, that's bad parenting. And that's how I thought people would want to hear that. Like, I didn't think people wanted to hear that it like invigorated me, that it was like a thrilling experience to go fill out these lottery numbers as a seven-year-old. Like I, would, I thought beforehand, like, what would people think of me? I can't, I can't share that. But it's what I felt. Um, so this daydream and despair. And, and the, the, the structure that that breaks, and I think it's probably the most damaging to a kid who goes through that, the structure that that destroys is it destroyed my framework for moving incrementally moving towards something better so then as i got older when i was 10 and 11 and 12 filling out those lottery tickets there was no longer that excitement there was no longer that vigor and that just pure like unadulterated like electric like i got struck by lightning just like this this electrical energy that was that disappeared and it became disdain and hatred for my dad and and resentment not just towards my dad but towards the gods and the powers of the be and the universe and whatever you know it was, i wasn't a christian at this point so i had no reference to like direct that towards like the god of the bible it was just like you know who's ever in charge up there here's a double bird um, go screw yourself because, you know, I have been with all of my effort trying to channel and listen to and divine the correct ovals to put my number two pencil. And for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on end, I've failed at that and I'm pissed off. Um, it's a tough one to break. It's a very tough one to break. You know, and it's probably sort of uh, just, I'm going to loosely tie this in, kind of casually make a segue into Thomas Edison's famous saying that, you know, success is missed, or is it, no, opportunity is missed by most because it's dressed in overalls and appears like, and looks like work. And this is the, the secret sauce. <laughs> the secret sauce of dealing with poverty is this. And I'm actually going to dedicate an entire episode to, to exploring um, this topic. Actually, but, but, you know, before I get there, I'm looking at my notes. There's one other thing that this structure blew up, um, that, that living in poverty blew up. And it's that it created all of this put together, the despair daydreaming cycle, um, you know, not seeing structure in time or family structures or responsibility structures or planning or goal setting or any of that stuff. Um, it created scarcity and suspicion in everything. Scarcity of physical things like food, water, running water, I mean, um, plumbing, electricity, heat, we went through several winters in northern New Mexico 
with the worst spottiest, you know, we'd had a 25 gallon propane tank and, you know, once a month, my dad would fill it up. So the rest of the three and a half weeks, you know, in the middle of freezing cold winter, you know, it was like, well, put on three pairs of pants and four sweaters and your jacket, you know, deal with it, sucker. Um, which probably had a lot to do with why we moved to Florida. I hate cold and being here in Georgia, dealing with cold, that's been a real mental challenge and a real like flashbacky kind of thing. Oh, you're such a wimp. You're flashing back to cold weather. You should have been in Nome or Normandy. Um, it's been a challenge for me um, to embrace the cold weather. Like, hey, that was in the past. I've got heat now. You know, we've got a furnace that works. We've got natural gas fireplace that I can get warm in front of. Um, you know, we've got the means to pay those bills so we can keep the heat on throughout the winter. Praise God for that. Um, so that's been, that's been a challenge. Um, but the scarcity in all things, physically, any physical need or any physical thing, there was a scarcity of. And then emotionally, there's all kinds of scarcity. Scarcity of love, scarcity of attention, um, scarcity of love and attention, affection. Um, yeah, all that stuff. Conversation, discussion. Uh, just scarcity across the board and you put that together with suspicion in all things and man it's just it creates a it, it, it feeds the despair it feeds the despair um, you know one of the things that I heard my sisters and I heard the most growing up was if you hear a sound hide if you hear a car hide why oh because it's likely the state coming to take you away that was, that was drilled into our brains um, from a very young age. If you hear a car, like we were when we were out in the rural, um, there was, you know, we were rural in Kingman, we were rural in Sedona, um, rural in a couple different places in New Mexico. And it was always when you hear a car, hide, because it's the state coming to take you away. And I remember my parents, there was a family that was lived 30 miles from us in a different rural part, we were north New Mexico. They were western New Mexico, west of Albuquerque. We were north of Albuquerque. And I remember the Albuquerque Journal ran a piece on this family who had, it was like, it was like the carbon copy, like, like Dr. Strange multiverse of madness. Like I was like, how did our family end up on the west side of Albuquerque? <laughs> it's the exact same situation. A dumpy trailer in the middle of nowhere, no electricity, no running water, no plumbing, homeschooled, lack of food, lack of provision, emotional neglect, blah, 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 alcoholism. You just ran down the list. And they got discovered by the state. And there was a big story in the Albuquerque Journal about how these kids had been taken by child welfare services and the family, you know, I think the dad was, you know, they were, the, the parents were charged with, you know, child neglect and whatever. And, 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 and my, my parents took that story and it was like, they put it up on the, you know, they put that front center in the trailer and we're like, Hey, this is why we tell you to hide. Um, do you want to get taken away? Um, so the suspicion in all things, holy freaking crap. Like talk about setting a kid up, um, to be antisocial as you get older, like, you know, and, 
and to think the worst. And, it, and here's the worst part about it is it's, exact, it's the exact opposite. It's the devilish opposite of 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes all thing, things, hopes all things, endures all things. That took me a while to work through that because growing up in that environment, I didn't believe all things. I was suspicious of all things, especially the older I got. You know, the next carrot would come out. Hey, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and it's going to solve all our problems. Yeah, right. Go pound sand, dude. Your last 17 things didn't work. Why should I believe that one works? And I didn't articulate that because, you you know, you didn't know what sort of volatility switch you'd set off if you responded that way. So you just sort of, that's how you felt internally. And you were like suspicious. And then you'd hear a car and I was like, crap, there's the state. And looking back, I probably should have been like, sweet. Let's start a freaking trailer fire. Get the fire department out here. <laughs> Let's get some eyeballs on this thing. Um, because maybe going to live in a foster home, at least, you know, I wouldn't be freezing my freaking balls off and uh, dealing with overflowing camper porta potties. Jeez Louise. Um, so, yeah. So all of that create scarcity and suspicion in all things. And I'm just going to be honest with you. If you have been in poverty or you are in poverty or you've dealt with substance abuse, that's likely just a reality that you've got to deal with. And it's a tough one. Like breaking scarcity mentality is hard. It's hard. I still, to this day, tear a piece of Wrigley's gum in half. Sometimes I break it into quarters. What? It's a piece of gum. My friend up in DC busts my chops all the time. He's like, hey, did you buy a full pack of gum for the kids today? And I'm like, ugh. Like it literally, it doesn't give me the full flop sweats anymore. But the idea of eating a full stick of Wrigley's gum, as stupid as that sounds, it makes me extremely uncomfortable. There was a a good friend in Tampa, I might have mentioned before, um, who ended up, he was about 18 months ahead of where I was. And I was really going through a dark time. And he showed up at our, at our doorstep. We were living with my in-laws, um, which is a whole nother set of podcasts, uh, around the great financial crisis. And he knocked this guy, there was the knock at the door and I opened the door and it was this guy that I knew from church. And he just looked at me and he goes, Brandon, he goes, I was praying for you this morning and he goes, I just felt like God told me to come over here and tell you that I'm 18 months farther along than where you are. And he goes, if you want to talk about anything, you know, let's do it. I'm open. And it was like a godsend. So, you know, I started talking to this guy. He'd gone through church abuse. He'd gone through an alcoholic father. He'd gone through, you know, his business, um, you know, struggling with his business due to economic circumstances and whatnot. Um, and so it was really, really cathartic to go through that. And he was at a place now where professionally he was very successful. And he was paying quite a bit of money to go to this counselor. And so we would meet for lunch and he would sort of just share with me what his counselor was working through with him. And one of the things that he told me, he said, the most powerful thing that you can do is to heal. Oh, you're so new agey. You're like... What you're not a Christian? He said you can heal your seven-year-old self, your eight-year-old self, your twelve-year-old self by writing down this is what my dad did in this situation. I wish he would have done this. 
and then go and do that with your kids. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. So you know what the first thing I wrote down? Eat a full piece of gum. No, it wasn't that. Uh, we would go to, periodically we would go to Taco Bell. And back in the day, they had their 39, 59, 79 menu. It was like their Fiesta menu. Okay, they, they had their 59, 70, and 99. That was their big thing. But for a while, they had this Fiesta menu that was 39, 59, 79. And it was like smaller items. So it was like a mini tostada, like a mini burrito, like smaller stuff. And so periodically, my dad, when he was feeling, I don't know, I don't know, he was feeling on top of the world. Maybe he was feeling regret. He would be like, all right, we're going to go to, we're going to go to Taco Bell, but you can only get one thing off the Fiesta menu. And I always felt like the 79 cent menu was splurging. So I'd kind of feel him out, you know, because it was almost like, talk about the suspicion and all things. It was like, is he testing me here to see if I'm going to like stiff him, stick it to him for 79 cents when he only wants me to spend 39? So, you know, you kind of feel him out. I never went for the 79 cent item because I didn't want to incur the wrath of that 20 cent difference. Um, So most of the time I would stick in that, you know, if I would feel him out and if I felt like it wasn't a super setup, I'd go with the 59 cent item. And if I was on, I was like, if I was like, dude, I don't know, like this is this is a total con job. Like I would just get the thirty nine cent menu, and you know, my sisters used to bust my chops for it. They'd be like, you're such a, you know, you're you're just so trying to sensitive and trying to manipulate him and make him feel sorry for you. And I was like, dude, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna risk volatility max over twenty nine cents. So I'll stick with that thirty nine cent item. Um, but it was a huge source of stress, and and. My sisters and I joke when we get together, um, which is <laughs> first time we were joking about this. My wife told me later, she goes, um, what you guys were talking about wasn't funny at all. She's like, it was full on like abuse. And I was like, no, it's hysterical. What are you talking about? She's like, dude, you need help. <laughs> so we used to joke about how um, my older sister would, you know, kind of, she'd get out her put out her bottom lip and like batter eyelashes to talk my dad into letting her add 19 cents worth of sour cream to a 79 cent burrito. And that was like the big spender right there, you know, drop that sour cream on the 79 cent burrito. Um, so my friend tells me when you're X years old, your dad did this. I wish he would have done that. Go do that with your kids. So that's the first thing I wrote down. Go to Taco Bell and order whatever you freaking want to order. No questions asked. Zero. Look at the menu and just order until your heart's content. And after you finish that, if you still want more, go back. So I took my kids, you know, and I said, hey, you know, I, I've, I've shared with my kids things as I've gone through some of this stuff. And it was like, hey, you know, guys, I'm taking you to Taco Bell. Go crazy. I'm just going to give you my check card. Here's the pin number. Go crazy. So the four of them go up there, you know, and they're kind of looking at me like, huh, what's this all about? And uh, they ordered. They ordered chalupas and freaking, you know, cinnamon twists and 44-ounce Mountain Dews and, you know, a taco pack and the double Dorito crunch and, you know, all the things. And they came back and they handed me their seat and it was like $28. It was like the best $28 I ever spent. <laughs> it was so cathartic. Oh, you're so lame. You're trivializing poverty experiences. Look, if you don't like this, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just telling you what happened in my life. So I, I can attest 
to the power of doing that. So if you've been through abuse, if you've been through trauma, if you've been through deprivation, scarcity, suspicion, just make a list. My mom did this. My dad did this. My parents did this. When I was X years old, these people did this. I wish they would have done that and then go do that either with your kids or with your spouse or with by yourself or whatever. There's a lot of healing in that. Um, so scarcity and suspicion in all things. The way that you break this cycle, and I wish I would someone would have told me this a long time ago, but I've got to trust that God's, God's sovereignty is in play here and that he knew what he was doing as he kind of dispensed this lesson out over time. Um, the goal of that daydreaming, the object that you set your heart on with that daydreaming was leisure. That's what it was. If I fill in the correct oval numbers on this Powerball ticket and they are correct, I can leisure. We can leisure. Our ship will come in and we can leisure. And until our ship comes in, we're going to continue to languish. So you are constantly languishing while daydreaming about leisure. You're languishing in despair while you're daydreaming about some sort of future potential leisure. The only way, the way that you break that, the way that you begin to chip away at that and change the direction is you have to become convinced that the goal is not to languish into leisure. The goal, the object to pursue is to work and to worship well. Work and worship well. And, and what I love about this and what I think is so powerful about this is it doesn't matter what your job is. You can seek to work at it well. It doesn't matter where you reside. Well, maybe it does if you're rural, you know, 50 miles from anything. I don't know how you would worship well because where are you going to find a church? But assuming you're within driving distance or walking distance of a place of worship, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is to get there. Yeah, the church has become kind of superficial and, you know, more concerned with wealth and image than they should be across the board. And they might look down on you with your high water homeschool pants and your outgrown shirt. But you can find a place of worship and you can worship well regardless of your circumstances. So for anyone either in the midst of poverty or still coming out of the destructive despair and daydreaming cycle of poverty, or maybe you're in it right now. All you do is you sit around and you despair 90% of the time, and then you concoct these ever increasingly wild daydreams in order to kind of give you a boost and an injection of life with just when it runs out, when that adrenaline dries up, it just drives you deeper into the despair pit. If that's the cycle you're in, you have to set you have to remove your heart from desiring leisure 
and realize that the way to chip away at this is to begin to desire to work and to worship well. And like I said, it doesn't matter what your job is, you can work well at it. And there's all kinds of biblical tie-ins for this. Um, He who is faithful in the small things um, will be faithful in much. He who is dishonest in the small things or in a few things will be dishonest in much. And it's probably mercy from God that I never divined the correct ovals to fill in because it probably would have exponentially multiplied the despair pit that my old man's been in or was in and probably to a large degree maybe still is in. So change the expectation. Change the hope. Don't dangle the carrot of leisure in front of you any longer. Instead, put in front of you a clear focus to work and to worship well. There's a quote Mark Twain said. He said that a bad habit isn't thrown out the window. It must be coaxed down the stairs step by step. And I would say that these destructive powers of poverty, the destruction of of structures and patterns, creating suspicion, scarcity in all things, making it super easy to plant but next to impossible not to uproot, all of these destructive powers cannot just be tossed out the window in one little chuck. It's not like you pick up all of that baggage and you just chuck it out the window and that's it. No, they must be, and I would say not even coaxed down the stairs. They must be wrestled. They must be body checked. You got to get in a sumo stance at the top of those stairs and you got to wrestle that thing one step at a time down the stairs. And you go, oh, that's not salvation by faith. That's not justification alone. I'm not talking about salvific forces here. I'm not talking about salvation and justification. I'm talking about the practical day-to-day realities of dealing with the the destruction of poverty. These destructive forces of poverty. You got to get in a wide stance at the top of the stairs with some resolve and say, you know what? This is a, I'm in this for the long haul. Today, I'm going to get up and I'm going to wrestle this thing closer to the edge of that first stair step. And I'm going to hold it there. I'm not going to let it sneak back and get any more ground. And then the next day you get up. You say, I'm going to put all my faculties and energies and focus into wrestling this thing even closer to the edge of that first stair and maybe it'll drop down one stair and once it gets down that stair you keep it there it's not like this this thing's a huge piano that once you just get the gravity going in the right direction it's gonna like you know come back it's like there's a massive spring that's perpetually pushing this piano back up the stairs towards you And you have to continue to apply pressure on this thing on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis. I don't have the strength for that. I can't do that. It sounds overwhelming. Well, and that's where I think the spiritual side of this comes in. You know, Paul the Apostle says that you, by my 
My strength is made perfect in your weakness. As I read in the last episode, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. By his poverty, by, by Christ's poverty, we were made rich. This is not material promises. This is soul promises. This is internal heart, soul, mind stuff going on. So yeah, it looks daunting. Yeah, it looks difficult. Yeah, it looks overwhelming. But there are spiritual resources there to strengthen you in the inner man, Paul the Apostle says. Um, so yeah, this is this is where the tie-in uh, of the theology podcast and the business podcast, I think, are necessary. Um, because there is definitely a spiritual component um, to all of this. So take the practical advice and seek to empower it with some spiritual power from the Lord. And you may continue to work the exact same job for the next year or three years or five years. You may never change jobs. This isn't a promise that you're gonna that your ship's gonna come in. It's a promise that you're gonna instead of drifting through life, begin to steer it. Um, I'll close with this. There's a there's a couple um, that that a good friend of mine knew in Albuquerque who they were a married couple. They were an immigrant couple, and they worked the night shift as cleaning janitors um, for the hospital rooms. And so they would empty bedpans and they would change sheets and they would scrub floors and they would, you know, clean the bathrooms and take care of all the stuff, bodily fluids and, you know, just stuff that's not very appealing. They were both Christians. They both worked jobs throughout the day as well. And this really good friend of mine said that they were the most joyful couple that she had ever met. They always had a smile on their face. They were always encouraging people around them. They were always working diligently. And I think... Somehow, some way, they came to an understanding that their primary role in life was to work and to worship well, regardless of what that work entailed. And that fits right with what Paul the Apostle says. Whatever your hands find to do, work at it with all of your heart as unto the Lord and not unto men. Our second son got a job uh, over the holidays being a temporary worker slinging boxes at a UPS distribution facility um, this last December, just a month ago. It was, you know, temp work, seasonal work, three months, Christmas rush. They hire a bunch of people to come in and sling boxes. And he gets assigned to a semi-truck. And he said it takes about four hours to load one of those massive trucks. And they're assigned, him and a couple other young dudes are assigned to this truck. And there's a guy that shows up named Isaac, 72 years old, he finds out. Back brace on hustling, grinding. And Tobias said the two younger guys he was working with, they were like, yo, yo, Isaac, slow down, bro. You're making us look bad. And I'll never forget Isaac's response. And I am I'm forever thankful to the Lord that he put Isaac in the same truck with my son Tobias for that night because the whole three weeks he was there, he never worked with Isaac again. This 72-year-old man and Isaac turned around to those two kids and he said, fellas, I'm not working to impress you. I'm working to please the Lord. And he just kept hustling. And Tobias said for the entire four hours they were loading that truck, he put those two 
young kids to shame, and Tobias said that he was struggling to keep up with this guy. Um, what a response. What a response. Whatever your hands find to do, work at it with all of your heart as unto the Lord and not unto men. That right there is getting near the kernel of breaking this destructive cycle of despair and daydreaming that so often accompanies poverty. So there's your food for thought for now. Look forward to chatting with you on the next episode. Work and worship well. Talk to you soon.